What a great prayer for us to pray for Jesus to draw us nearer to Him. And I think this morning, as we have a chance to look at God's Word, we will see a very particular way that He says that that happens. Um, He wants every Christian to be close to Him. Uh, That's the truth. And uh, sometimes the way that life runs, it just doesn't quite happen that way. Sometimes the circumstances that He means to grow us sometimes get us off track because we don't respond to trials and adversity the right way. And so this morning we're returning back to our series in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, just a couple things, just by way of reminder, kind of where we're at. We're in Matthew chapter 5. We, uh, right before Easter, had just finished the Beatitudes and uh, Jesus' commendation for believers to be salt and light. Now, as you look through the Gospel of Matthew and you look over the first couple of chapters... Really, the first chapter is all genealogy uh, in, in talking about the birth of Christ. Chapter 2 is uh, the wise men, the flight to Egypt. Uh, chapter 3 is John the Baptist. Chapter 4 is his temptation and the first calling of his disciples. And then chapter 5 begins the Sermon on the Mount. We're not very far into Jesus' ministry when he gives this colossal Magna Carta of what it means to be a Christian. This constitution of what the kingdom life under King Jesus looks like. And Jesus up to this point has really said some startling things. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are gentle. You, followers of me, are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And as startling as some of the things are that he says where he reverses kind of the social order, there are people who have gathered to hear Jesus preach who are not concerned with what Jesus has said as much as they are upset about what he has not said. Jesus is declaring what kind of kingdom he is setting up, and he hasn't said anything about the law and keeping it. He hasn't said anything about the temple in giving to the temple. He hasn't said anything about reverence and respect for teachers of the law, for the Pharisees and the scribes. And if you happen to be a Pharisee or a scribe, you're really upset at this. Jesus is laying out what the life that he is uh, commending looks like. And these things that are precious to them, Jesus has been mysteriously silent about. Not a peep. And so some, certainly, want to cast doubts upon Jesus' orthodoxy. Well, he can't be from God. He doesn't like God's word. He hasn't said one iota about keeping God's word. And so Jesus, in the passage that we'll look at today, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus states very clearly that he is not a lawless one. And we learn an important lesson, too, as we look at Jesus' teaching, because This is true, that you cannot take Jesus seriously and not take Scripture seriously. That's the point this morning. And so I'd like for us to look at this passage and ask for God's blessing as we um, study it this morning. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, page 683 in your pew Bible. Jesus says this, Don't assume... That I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. 
For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all these things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, you've got to be real careful about Jesus mentioning you in one of his sermons, because the scribes and Pharisees got their mention right there, and it wasn't all that flattering. Well, we're moving, we're moving into a section where Jesus has completed his Beatitudes, and he now moves into kind of an extended session where Jesus gives seven specific commands. Uh, what does it look like to live in the kingdom? And he talks about murder begins in the heart. If you're angry, you've murdered. Adultery begins in the heart. Divorce is not God's ideal. Not breaking your oath, learning how to go the second mile, and not doing the eye for the eye, the tooth for a tooth. Loving your enemies. And the very first command that he gives us is to love God's word. And he does it in this passage. He says, don't assume that I have come to destroy the law. That is not why I have come. And I think in his process here, he gives us seven commands. And it's, it's not like Jesus is trying to say, hey, listen, in the Old Testament, you had ten commands. I'm just going to give you seven. You know, and if you sign up now, you'll get a pair of steak knives too. It's not like he's trying to undersell the Old Testament. I think what he is really trying to do right here is he's trying to, to show his people what it means to interpret the Old Testament in light of him. And he gives these seven as examples. Because there are all kinds of ways that we can be obedient to Jesus. We can even be obedient to the Old Testament law. But we don't do it because law-keeping is what we're wanting to do. We do it because we want to honor Christ as our king. So he's attempting to show us how to apply the Old Testament scriptures in light of his fulfillment of it. And his very first command is this command to love the scriptures. Now, in one sense, Jesus is taking on a very daunting task because this is Jesus's first and only book review, and it happens to be of the number one bestseller of his day. He's giving a book review about the Old Testament, and everyone has an opinion about the Old Testament because everyone in his audience pays attention to it. That's their book. And Jesus is going to authoritatively tell them how they need to view the Old Testament. That's serious business. And so we begin this morning by looking at our first point that we have to, today, as Christians, understand that a fulfilled Old Testament still applies to us today because Jesus clarifies Scripture's continuing validity. That's a big sentence. We must understand that a fulfilled Old Testament, not an unfulfilled Old Testament, this is a different Old Testament, a fulfilled Old Testament still applies to us today because Jesus clarifies its continuing validity. Now, we don't talk about continuing validity in kind of normal, everyday terms. But I have in my wallet here a driver's license. And if I get pulled over by a police officer, and uh, what's the date here? Expires January 13th, 2022. So if I get pulled over on January 14th, 2022, and I've not gotten this fixed, what's my problem? I don't have a valid driver's license. It doesn't count anymore. 
It does, I don't get any credit with the police officer for having had a valid driver's license. He doesn't go, oh, I see, you know, back in 19, you know, 1997, you had a valid driver. Good job. You know, hey, we'll take, we'll take five miles off, you know, five miles an hour off. Uh, validity means that, it, is it still enforceable? Is there anything about it that's still pertinent today? Because I think as Christians, we kind of think, you know, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the scriptures of the Jews, that was for them. You know, quite honestly, I don't know that we need a Bible with 66 books. Why don't we have one with just 27? Because we're under the New Testament, right? Well, listen to what Jesus says. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. Now, the word law is an interesting word in, in, in the Bible because it could be shorthand for a lot of different things. When a, when a Jew says the law, you kind of need to say, all right, what do you mean exactly by the law? Because the law could mean the Ten Commandments. Very narrowly, very specifically, it could mean the Ten Commandments. It could mean the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament that Moses wrote. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It could mean all of the Old Testament. The law could be the entire Old Testament, all 39 books. Or the law could mean the rabbinic and scribal traditions, the extra things that the current teachers were adding to it. And so here, uh, it becomes really clear for us because Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets. By, by, by making a distinction between law and prophets, it's clear he's talking about the entire Bible. And here, Jesus is making it very clear that you cannot divorce him from the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. There is some continuing benefit for people today because Jesus is not destroying it and throwing it away and burning it up. He is fulfilling it. As a matter of fact, the only glimpse that we get of King Jesus as a boy is him doing what? Studying the Old Testament. Twelve years old, and he misses the caravan. He doesn't get the memo that it's time to go home. And he stays and he studies the law. He loves the scriptures. And so for us this morning, I, I think the temptation is for us to frame the question like this. What is, the, what is um, Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament? That's the wrong way to frame the question. Because the question is, what is the Old Testament's relationship to Jesus? Who's central in this? The Old Testament or Jesus? It's Jesus. And so the question is not, you know, how does Jesus relate to the Old Testament? How does the Old Testament relate to him? And Jesus says very clearly that he himself completes and clarifies the meaning of the Old Testament. Now, through this passage, as Jesus starts to give all of these seven commands, uh, the six commands after this one that follow it, Jesus goes through all of these, um, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, uh, statements. You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say unto you, if you harbor anger in your heart, you've already killed somebody. He is um, not expanding or intensifying the Old Testament as much as he's showing the direction it was always pointed in, just people didn't get it clear. Jesus is not giving us new information. He's saying, guys, listen, there was a spirit to the Old Testament law that people forgot. And they got, they got satisfied with, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And they completely denied the direction that it was heading in all along. And so he's saying, this is the fulfillment through his teaching. His comment here about coming to fulfill it is that the Old Testament's real and abiding authority can only be understood through the person 
to whom it points, and the person who so richly fulfills it. There are so many ways that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And so the entire Old Testament's abiding validity is established in its relationship to Jesus and his kingdom. He is the one who makes the Old Testament significant. And if we could ask Jesus today, hey, what should a Christian's attitude towards the Old Testament, what should it be? Jesus would say he's here um, not to collide with it, but to cooperate with it. Jesus' whole point is not destruction. It's not collision. It's cooperation. He's not here to contradict it. He's here to complement it. And so how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? Well, for one, everything in the Old Testament points to him. Not just the specific predictions that he'd be born of a virgin, that he would ride a donkey, that he would um, be born of a certain tribe. There are other things in the Old Testament that point to him too, besides the specific predictions. Think about this. The entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament points to him. That's a significant portion of the Old Testament. All of the really significant leaders, King David foreshadows King Jesus. Moses foreshadows King Jesus. All of the prophets foreshadow Jesus. The laws that were given, that were impossible for men to obey, Jesus is the only one who obeyed them perfectly. So the sacrificial system, the most popular characters, the laws that he uh, most perfectly obeyed, the wisdom that the Old Testament gave was exemplified in his life. So whatever genre of scripture you want to take from the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills it because it points to him. Now, there are other ways that Jesus fulfills it too. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament through his teaching. He does that here. He says, listen, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. He is the chief prophet. He perfectly obeyed the law. His sinless lifestyle allowed him to be the chief sacrifice. He allowed himself to die a death for his people, allowing him to be our chief high priest. And he rules as king, making him the chief king beyond any of the kings of the Old Testament. Now, when we talk about Jesus' fulfillment, I think these two things are kind of fun. talking about Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. If you took the state of Texas, the entire state, big state, and you covered it with silver dollars to a depth of two feet, that's a lot of silver dollars, and then you painted one red, threw it in there, and mixed them all up, and then you blindfolded yourself, and on your first try, you pulled the red silver dollar out, That's about the probability of Jesus fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies, just the prophecies that he did. State of Texas, covered to a depth of two feet with silver dollars, one painted red, and on your first try blindfolded, you pull the right one out. Listen to this. A scientist calculated this. Suppose that there are 200 billion earths out there, each populated by 4 billion people each. 200 billion earths, populated by 4 billion people each. That's how many worlds and how many people you would need to come up with one person who could achieve 100 accurate prophecies without any errors in the proper sequence. That's the probability. 200 billion worlds, 400 billion people. Here's the thing that's the kicker. The Bible records not 100 sequential prophecies fulfilled by Christ, but over 300 
fulfilled in his first coming alone. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture, and he clarifies its continuing validity. Number two, we must always submit to Scripture because Jesus tells us the duration and the extent of Scripture's inspired authority. We must always submit to Scripture. Because Jesus tells us how long it lasts, what is its duration, and what is the extent, how far does its inspired authority extend. He begins verse 18 by saying, um, in my translation, for I assure you, uh, maybe in your translation it says, truly, truly, I say unto you. That means this is something of utmost importance. What Jesus is about to say, he's calling your attention to you. He's going, hey, listen, let me get your attention Truly, truly, I say unto you. And what does he say in verse 18? Until heaven and earth pass away, nothing will pass. And then he says at the end of verse 18, until all things are accomplished. So he gives us these two until statements to tell us what is the duration of Scripture's authority. Until heaven and earth pass away, until all things are accomplished. So what are the all things to be accomplished? We understand pretty clearly what the ends of heaven and earth are. That's clear. What is the all things being accomplished? Well, that's the whole point of God's saving plan. And when we think about Jesus' saving plan, what's the thing that stands out most to us in in God's saving plan? It's Jesus' death and resurrection. What's one of the things that Jesus says while he's hanging on the cross? It is finished finished until all things have been accomplished now it is finished here's a trick question is it over well no what jesus finished in his work on the cross will be completely finished when he returns again and so when the bible when jesus says for the bible its duration is until heaven and earth pass away until all things are accomplished certainly when we look through kind of the timeline of biblical revelation, Jesus' death and resurrection is central. Our salvation was secured, but we don't appreciate that until His return. And so it's talking about uh, God's plan to save His people. As Jesus was speaking here, He'd already fulfilled Scripture. Messianic prophecy that the Messiah would come, that's been fulfilled. The birth from a virgin, the incarnation, that's been fulfilled. And through Jesus' continuing teaching ministry as a, as a man, there are other scriptures that will be fulfilled, and there are others that will one day in the future be fulfilled. Jesus is saying here that he has the highest possible view of the Old Testament. When he talks about the duration, he gives us the two until statements, until heaven and earth pass away, until all things are accomplished. But what's he say in the middle there? He says, until heaven and earth pass away, verse 18... Not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Jesus is here moving from talking about the duration of Scripture's authority to the extent of Scripture's authority. And Jesus believes that the Bible was inspired by God down to the very pen strokes. The typewriter hits. And he he says here, in, in, in some of your older translations, it will say one jot or tittle. Yiddish terms for uh, parts of uh, sentences that function in the Hebrew language. Uh, The jot 
is most likely the Hebrew letter, the Yod, uh, kind of what would translate to a Y in English. But the Yod was the smallest and least significant of all the Hebrew letters. It would be probably close to an um, uh, apostrophe. You know, you write your sentence and you know you want to make a contraction and you put a little apostrophe there. You know, if you don't pay attention, you might not even see that little more. He's saying the smallest letter of the Old Testament is inspired by God and will not pass away until all things are accomplished. The, the, the tittle, or what my translation calls the um, uh, stroke of a letter. Not the smallest letter or the stroke of a letter. Uh, there are Hebrew letters that basically look the same except for a little extension on the base of it. Think about it this way. What's the difference between an O and a Q? Capital O, capital Q. They look the same. It's a circle. It's a circle. But the Q's got this little, little mark. And that little mark makes that a Q, not an L. No, it's not a big mark. But, and it's not a letter. It's just that mark that then makes that letter a distinct sound. He's saying nothing is going to happen to Scripture until it's all complete. And that the inspiration is not up for you to figure out uh, by your rationality. Well, I like this passage. Um, I don't like this passage. No, he says, Scripture's inspiration comes from God, and it extends down to the very details. We call this, uh, from Jesus' own definition here of believing in the inspiration of Scripture, we call this, as conservative Bible-believing Christians, the doctrine of inerrancy. That the Bible is inerrant without error. Here's the definition of that that I think works. Inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, that the scriptures in their original writings, properly interpreted, will be shown to be wholly true in every single thing they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality, or with the social, physical, or life sciences. Did you get that? It says, once everything is known... And we understand it, know all the facts, and we have properly interpreted it. We will find out that the Bible is true in every single thing it affirms, no matter what uh, kind of science it is, whether it's theology or whether it's biology, whether it's geology or whether it's sociology. We will find that God, in His inspiration, has made the Bible say what is true. So Jesus is saying here, not only is there continuing validity, but he tells us the law is in effect. The, the, the scriptures are binding until everything is accomplished and that the extent of its inspiration extends down to the most minute details. But then he concludes in verses 19 through 20 by telling us that we should heed the warning that there is danger in disobedience and there is delight in in doing. Look at verse uh, 19. Jesus says, therefore, anytime the therefore shows up, you should know what the therefore is there for. He's summarizing what he said in verse 17 and 18 about him coming to fulfill, not destroy, uh, its duration, its extent of inspiration. And he says in verse 19, therefore, Because of all the things that I've said to this point, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, guys, listen, you disobey, bad news. You obey, 
good news. But he says this, whoever breaks uh, one of the least of these commands, what in the world are these commands? Is he talking about the entire Old Testament? I don't think so. He's certainly not talking about ritual purity. I mean, we all drove a car here to, to, to worship. According to the Old Testament, we would have broken the law. We, we've done work. We've exerted ourselves. He says, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands, which ones are they? Are they the commands he's about to give? Well, that could be too limiting. But it can't be the entire Old Testament. And so I, I think this is helpful. Because we've just discussed how Jesus says all of the law points to him. He is the fulfillment of it. It all points forward and that Jesus himself establishes their continuing validity. We cannot accurately understand the Old Testament apart from Jesus. It just doesn't happen. For example, Jesus as our sacrifice and our high priest has destroyed the Old Testament style of worship. How many of you have brought your goat or your bull with you today? You know, um, we're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper today. We can get rid of the grape juice and we could pour out the blood of a sacrificial animal. We don't believe that the worship ceremonies of the Old Testament are still valid today because Jesus fulfilled that, because he was the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. We don't have priests. You know why? Because Jesus is our priest. You remember what happened when Jesus died. It says that the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. Why that detail? Why is it torn from top to bottom? To show that it's God who did it. No person could have gotten to the, the top of that. They, they Get the extension letter out. Um, God did it himself. And he's showing that some of the things in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ. Jesus fulfills the sacrificial system, the priestly system. Now, at the same time, other items of the law, like loving our neighbor, that was true in the Old Testament, and guess what? It's still true now. So here's the tricky thing for Christians. Jesus completely fulfills parts of the Old Testament, and while they may be interesting historically, they are not binding in their validity today. You know, my, my clothes are made of mixed fibers. The Old Testament forbid that because the pagans did that. We don't believe that that's a law that's valid today. There are a few guys here that enjoy spending their falls watching college and professional football, throwing that pig bladder around. That's a terrible thing for a Jew. Not kosher. There are some things in the Old Testament that do not abide. And many people see the law as functioning in three different ways, the Old Testament functioning in three different ways. Now, to be clear, an Old Testament Jew would not break the law down into these three components, okay? We are looking back. They would, not, they would never have done this. They would have seen the law as a unitary whole. But for us, as we are trying to figure out how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament this, this seems to make sense, that the law had three parts. One part was it, the law was moral, and this was the law's effect to regulate the behavior of all men, something that was clearly right and allowable or clearly wrong and not allowable. Parts of the law were not just moral. Some of it was judicial. It served in a civic function 
to govern the nation of Israel. There were other parts of it that were ceremonial, that governed how Israel worshipped. And so as we understand fulfillment by Jesus, we don't live in, in, in a political environment where Jesus is our king. We have a human president. We don't live in a theocracy. We live in a democracy. And so the civic or the judicial parts of the law have been fulfilled. We don't worship the same way that a Jew would. We don't have candle stands and uh, livers to wash our hands in and bloody sacrifices because we believe that Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial portion of the law. But that means that the moral law, the you have heard it said, I say to you, don't hate, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't practice divorce. Jesus is saying in the New Testament what the Old Testament always said. Just people reinterpreted it to be more convenient for them. So obedience to the moral law is certainly still in effect, but not all the civic and ceremonial things. You know, that helps a lot because it explains Jesus' freedom. Because Jesus happened to get in a lot of trouble. Why don't your disciples wash their hands like good Jews are supposed to do? Well, why do you think Jesus didn't command his disciples to do that? Because he knew that there was a freedom from all of the ceremonies and all of the civic stuff. And Jesus was most concerned about the abiding impact of uh, the moral law. Uh, Jesus, you healed this guy on the Sabbath. How dare you do that? You worked on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus was more concerned about the morality than the civic or the ceremonial. The Bible, and I think Jesus would say very clearly that your attitude towards Scripture would be equal to your attitude towards God. If you you don't have a high view of Scripture, it's impossible for you to have a high view of God. And Scripture has an ethic. It is to be obeyed. It is the key to living in God's kingdom, upholding God's Word. I love the story of um, the student who is going off to college. And I know next week we have a chance to honor our uh, graduates. There's a young man who is going off to college, he's, he's received a scholarship. And his dad is not real pleased about the school that he's going to, but he can't kind of argue that the kid's got a, a full ride. Because the school has a Bible department, and the Bible department happens to be very theologically liberal. They don't, they don't believe the Bible. And so the dad sits his kid down before he goes to school and says, you know, you need to be prepared for this because they're going to tell you that Adam and Eve didn't exist and that we came from monkeys and that Jesus didn't really turn water into wine and this, that, and the other. And he said, you need to be very careful about that. Well, you fast forward four years, and the son comes home from graduation, and dad wants to know, has his son forsaken the scriptures? And he says to his son, son, tell me, do the professors at that school teach what my Bible teaches about Jonah? And the son says, well, dad, Jonah's not in your Bible. Dad goes, of course it is. Jonah's in my Bible. And the son had taken his dad's Bible four years before and had ripped out the pages of the book of Jonah from his Bible. So when the son said, Dad, there is no Jonah in your Bible, he knew that there wasn't because he had torn it out. And the question this morning is, what is indeed the difference between a liberal professor denying the scriptures 
in a so-called Christian who fails to read it. For four years, the dad had not realized that an entire book of the Bible had been removed from its pages. But yet, oh, we've got to have right doctrine. Listen, right doctrine is important, but only if it leads to right living. Jesus wants us to live differently. And the Bible gives us good news on this point. It says, if your ambition is to translate a love for scriptures and obedience into your life, you'll be great in the kingdom of God. But if you play around with the scriptures, if you make little of the scriptures, little will be made of you. You'll be called least in the kingdom of God. And Jesus concludes this by calling his disciples to a different kind of righteousness. He says, you need a higher righteousness than that that's been modeled for you by the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees were proud of conformity to all these extra biblical commands, but they had impure hearts. They were concerned with details rather than principles. They were concerned with actions rather than motives. They were concerned with doing rather than being. They were concerned with the letter of the law and cared not one whit for the spirit of the law. So when Jesus says your righteousness must be greater than the scribes or Pharisees, he's not saying righteous, a righteousness that's achieved by human effort, but a righteousness that is enabled by divine grace. It's not like the scribes and the Pharisees got a 79 on their um, righteousness test and Jesus is saying, they didn't do good enough, you need to ace it. It's not quantitative, do better than the Pharisees. He's saying, do different. It is qualitatively different. A righteousness that comes from a changed and repentant heart that leads to different motivations for doing the exact same actions that they may do. It just comes from a different motivation. And when your motivation is right, you find that your righteousness does indeed exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. The law is never designed for our justification, but it's a very helpful tool for, to, to point towards ways that we need to be sanctified. When the Bible says marriage is a precious institution, both Old Testament and New Testament, we should listen to that. And as a matter of fact, the way that the Bible concludes this passage in verse 20, it says, if it doesn't surpass it, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. We see that um, righteousness is literally the difference between heaven and hell. God's word and one's attitude towards it has eternal consequences. And here's the thing that I think is really interesting. In verse 19, he says, if you break it and you teach people to do it, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20 says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never even make it in. So in verse 19, someone makes it in, but they're called least. But in verse 20, they don't even make it at all. What's the difference between these two people? Well, in verse 20, um, the person's not concerned with righteousness at all. He's concerned with the kind of righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees are interested in, but it's not surpassing righteousness. It's an outward conformity to rules, but there's no transformation of heart. The person in verse 19 is concerned about righteousness, but they're inconsistent in their doctrine. You know one of the things that I'm grateful for? There's not an entrance exam to get into heaven. We don't have to write a doctoral dissertation on what we believe about the inspiration of scriptures. But you know what will be true? What you believe about the Bible will become clear with how you live. I don't need to give anyone a test to know what they believe about the scriptures. If you're here this morning, I hope that at least a small portion of why you're here is that you're obeying 
Jesus. Not because you got a new suit. Not because, you know, mama always used to make you come and mama ain't around anymore, but this is just the tradition. I hope that part of the reason that you're here is because you are wanting to not just have right doctrine, but you're wanting to to live the right way. And one of the most important things about what Jesus says about how a Christian lives for him is that we are reminded that we are where we are today by grace. And one of the ways that we remember that is by remembering his sacrifice. That every day of our life, it is appropriate for us to say, Jesus, I believe in you and I want to live for you. And you know, quite honestly, maybe this week I haven't done such a good job. So I'm asking for you to forgive me, to give me your spirit, that I might live for you better. And today, uh, we're going to sing a song about living for Jesus. And then our invitation this morning will be to do something that Jesus has invited us all to do. And that is to uh, eat his flesh and drink his blood. To remember the sacrifice that he made to make us righteous. And so let me pray for us as we uh, enter into this time of reflection and celebration. Remembering Jesus' sacrifice. God, we thank you for this opportunity to hear your word and to be reminded that uh, as Christians, how we live is important. We give testimony to um, the truth of what we believe by how we live. And so, God, I pray this morning that you will help us to exalt Christ our Lord and that you will help us to live differently in light of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.